So, I mean, I'm optimistic. I think entrepreneurs, scientists, engineers, business people, if we all sort of work together, can create the food that people love so that there's no sacrifice um, and also do so with far lower impact. That's the voice of Andrew Olive, a man who's scouted the world for quite a few years now, looking for businesses that he can support and invest in. He believes that entrepreneurs can change the world and he's lived and breathed it himself. At just 12 years old, he put together a sketch of a fire escape. And as all 12 year olds do, you come up with a business idea that years later will be a multi-million dollar opportunity. Andrew Ive is the founder of Big Idea Ventures. He came across into the food scene about seven years ago with a wealth of knowledge as an entrepreneur. He's been living and breathing innovation for years. As you'll find out, there's two stories of Andrew who is either the best salesman in the world or people just want to be aligned to him, and I can understand why. There's two stories of Australian startups who've met Andrew on a Thursday or Friday, been given an opportunity, and landed in New York the following Monday. One of them is one of our previous guests, Veronica Phil from Grounded Foods, and you can find her podcast in the show notes. He's a big believer in people and the opportunities for agriculture and food to provide solutions to the most challenging issues of our time. He believes it's possible to have access to the foods we love, but without having as big of an impact. So I thought I'd better pose the question, is chocolate an area where we're going to see a whole bunch of innovation? We chat about Andrew's journey from just being a kid right through to where he is today and what's next for Big Idea Ventures. One area that we started talking about was the opportunities for entrepreneurs in developing regions like India and Africa. Andrew's spent a bit of time working in India with people on the ground, in their cultures, creating real change. And there was one little thing he said on the side about Melbourne being the home of food and ag innovation for Australia, but we'll just let that one slide. Enjoy the chat. Now, Andrew, I've heard that your very first business idea came from when you were 12 years old. Can you tell me a bit more about that? They asked us to um, participate in a business plan competition, and I picked a sketch of a new product that I'd had in a little notebook and used that as the start for a business plan submission. And at the end of the competition they basically said uh the professors basically said you didn't win the competition but we want to back your business uh we want to invest in your your first company and i was like what you know what are you talking about there's no company it was like this is just a marketing exercise and anyway uh somehow i changed my mind and launched a company straight out of business school having been backed by the business school professors um, and that wasn't food either. That was a fire escape ladder I designed as a twelve-year-old. So, wow, there you go. And so, where where did the fire escape ladder go from there? Uh, spent the next two or three years. Um, I, so I went out to China, set up a manufacturing facility, put a, a sales force together in the US and Europe that was commission only. Um, so started making it in China, importing it back to Los Angeles, um, and then selling it into Home Depot and large kind of uh, hardware stores. 
and grew that company quite quickly. Um, there was an exit from there uh, after about three years where we kind of gave the investors something like 15 to $20 million, something along those lines. Um, so that, that's what happened with that first company. And then, so was it straight into food from there or did you no, no. Go, <laughs> work for someone else? No, no, no. I mean, I'm an old man. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old now. Um, from there, I went, I went to Silicon Valley, raised $20 million from investors, um, focused on um, a technology for um, manufacturers of products and retailers. So as, as my first company, I was a manufacturer of products. I saw that the relationship between the companies, the products that we were selling and the retailers was broken. It was a, a really disconnected system. So I set up, I went out to Silicon Valley, put a business plan together around that problem, raised 20 million bucks, grew a team, you know, so, uh, uh, built a business around that and then exited that company. So no, the, the last um, seven years have been focused on food. Before that, it was quite entrepreneurial. It was about building businesses, working with teams of people to launch new things. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. I still find that amazing. Was it just a, was it a random sketch that you had at 13? Was it, was there any reason behind a fire escape? Was there something you saw or was it just mucking around? Um, I don't, I don't know what it is with me, but, uh, when I take a shower, uh, I seem to have my kind of craziest ideas when I'm sort of taking a shower or just doing random things. And in this case, um, I had this, I was, as a teenager, I was sort of thinking about, wow, if there was a fire right now, I'm going to be trapped lying in my bed. How am I going to get out? You know, do I, do I jump out of a third story window or whatever? Um, and I just sort of went to sleep and then I woke up at maybe 2 a.m., 3 o'clock in the morning with this fully fleshed out design for a product that I could um, hook on my window and then drop out and it would just sort of open up and allow me to escape. And so I, I drew this product sketch. It sort of reassured me that if it existed, I would survive. And then I went back to sleep, uh, went back to sleep and didn't really think much about, about it until I picked that design out of my notebook. Uh, what was it like 20 years later to start a business? Yeah. Wow. All right. That's cool. <laughs> And so jumping across the, so the last, I suppose, decade or so with yeah. being an entrepreneur, was it just that an opportunity op opened up in food? There was more talk, more investment um, in, in the ag agriculture and food side that lured you across? Um, so there was an organization which was called Foodex and it, it was investing in very young companies in the food space uh, and the food and ag space. Um, it was probably one of the world's first uh, accelerators. So an accelerator is an, is a, um, is an organization which gives very, very young companies a little bit of money um, and then it asks them to come hang out in their space um, and then works with those companies to get them ready for launch, get them ready for market, or if they're in market already, helps them to scale. Uh, I was asked to take over responsibility for Foodex when it was very young. I think it was maybe about a year old. Um, the, the, 
the owner of Foodex um, met me on a few occasions, ultimately offered me an opportunity to, to kind of be the MD for, for Foodex. And it was specifically focused on finding really cool um, food companies around the world, giving them a little bit of money and helping them to, to grow. And as I'd been an entrepreneur for 20 years uh, in different industries, different business models, different teams, um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to, you know, roll my sleeves up with other founders across food, across ag, and help them to grow, start and grow those businesses. And so is, that's where you came across the Australian startup Uplift. Was that through Foodex? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. It was through Foodex. So basically, um, they applied for uh, they applied to to join uh, to get an investment. Uh, we they applied like as we were closing our doors. So we, we basically found their application or received their application on a Friday and we were due to start the next program with the top 10 companies and we'd received about 600 companies applying. So we'd gone through about 600 companies to find the 10 that we wanted to back. Um, on Friday, we got the application for Uplift um, we got on the phone with the founder and she um, really impressed us. And uh, we just, I don't know like how it happened so quickly, but we basically pulled the trigger, offered her a place. And she was based in Australia. And we said to her, you can have this last place if you can be in New York on Monday. And this was, this was on Friday, right? So she basically had to accept the deal, uh, sign up, get a plane ticket and fly from you know melbourne to or wherever I, I actually don't know whereabouts in australia she was specifically let's assume it was melbourne um and and be in new york by by monday morning so this is the second time i've heard and so speaking with veronica as well it's the second time i've heard of you stealing aussies at, over a weekend <laughs> are you the best salesman in the world or <laughs> how, i suppose yeah what's the there's just such such an opportunity over there or, or you, it's yeah you're... yeah so so the new company i'm i started was called big idea ventures or is called big idea ventures and it's focused on um backing plant-based and cell-based um food companies specifically um we recruit globally um I don't think that Veronica and Sean left Melbourne to come to the US because there's a big opportunity over here necessarily, um, or that it was, you know, or we needed them to do that. You know, I, we'd be just as happy if people went back to Melbourne after we've worked with them and, and kind of successfully launched the business in, in Australia um, and, or, you know, Australia plus Asia. Uh, I don't think it's the it, there's a necessarily a bigger opportunity in the US versus Australia slash Asia, for example. In fact, half of our companies that we invest in are in Asia, um, and we have an office in Singapore, and we're also actually talking about whether or not we open an office in in Australia right now. Um, I think it's I sure. think they personally I think they personally Sean and and Veronica personally wanted to be in LA. I just think they thought there was a, a cultural fit with the kind of plant-based product and company and brand they wanted to build. Um, 
yeah, I think LA's, you know, LA is a kind of a, 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 a an interesting focal point for some of the plant-based innovations that are coming through right now. And so I suppose looking at your portfolio. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Folio, a lot of it seems to be along the lines of plant-based. Is it, yeah, is there something that's luring you to, towards that? plant-based? Yeah. Yeah a, couple of, yeah, a couple of things for sure. Um, the animal protein industry, um, is having quite an impact on the climate. Um, basically, in the US, for example, 11 billion animals on an annual basis are, uh, are killed for, for food production. And uh, I think it's something like 14 billion. There's some, there's some obscure, anyway, don't, I, I'm not gonna start spouting data at you, but basically the animal protein industry as it's currently structured is quite challenging for for co2 production climate change um uh so i think consumers are more and more moving towards interesting products that meet their needs from a consumption perspective that tastes like the kind of meat products they've grown up to love that's culturally relevant for them um but i think there's the ability through plant-based to create the same taste and texture and bite and the experience that they're used to with a lower, you know, a lower impact on, on the environment and climate. And so I suppose it's, yeah, it is an emerging market. We're seeing it absolutely tight. You're seeing, yeah, billion dollar investments over in the States, but we are seeing a lot of companies starting to pop up. Is, is that the, the biggest focus for you in, in plant-based or, or, yeah, is it kind of more that that bigger global impact solving the big problems? So we we call ourselves big idea ventures because you know we're looking for ideas, companies, innovations which have the ability to be global. You know, we're not really just looking for companies that are going to do really well in LA or really well in Melbourne, but we're looking for companies which create great products great taste, great experiences, the kind of products uh, that consumers around the world are gonna want to um, consume. Uh, if it, you know, From our point of view, the biggest impact we can have is by, by bringing great products to market which appeal to people in Australia, Asia, North America, Europe, South America, et cetera, um, and aren't limited to one particular geography. We're seeing consumers in the plant space in US coming through quite aggressively. It's growing very, very quickly. We're seeing that same growth in Europe. Um, increasingly, it's coming through in um, key 
cities across you know Australia and uh, and and Asia. Uh, I think it's it's just a matter of time until it's it's even more pervasive than that. Yeah. And so I suppose more broadly, love what what do you want your impact to be in the space, or yeah, just in food in in life more generally. Um, so I started off maybe in, in terms of focusing on the plant based, cell based, like three four years ago as a meat eater, right, and. Um, what I wanted to do was to help people be able to have all of the things they love from a consumption perspective without having to, um, uh, without, with, with a lower footprint, like, you know, from a sustainability waste, uh, climate change, animal welfare perspective. Um, if you, if you create products which don't taste very good, and you try and sell them on the basis of ethics, no one's ever gonna consume them. They might try them once, but they're never gonna integrate them into their daily lives. So from my point of view, it's about working with great farmers, with great ingredient companies, you know, with great partners throughout the food supply chain to create great foods that look and taste like all of the great foods that people love, but just have a far lower um, footprint in terms of their impact. Um, I think it's possible for people to have all of the experiences they're used to without the sacrifice, but with products which, which aren't having as negative an impact on, you know, on climate, on, on the environment and so on. And I think that's becoming increasingly important as we, you know, scale up as a, as a, as a species, um, you know, if we want to, if we want to keep feeding ourselves, but also not sacrificing in terms of taste, texture, uh, cultural relevance, we need to get more creative and entrepreneurial with what we're producing and how we're producing it. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting one. And, um, it was kind of only highlighted a few weeks ago when, when we're talking about 2050 and what the world will look like. And it's, it's a scary thought because it, 2050 sounds so far away, but then when I actually think about it in 30 years time, I'll be basically my dad's age. And it's like, well, that's not really that old. He's still working. He's still doing all these things, but we're going to live in a world that's just so distinctly different from where we are today. We've yeah, less natural resources, you know, going to be 10 billion people. Um, we, we've got all a mountain of issues. The greenhouse gas emissions, global warming will be, two degrees probably three two degrees plus based off what the current baselines are it's Mm. it's a scary thought and so that's where this it what i love now is that food and agriculture is actually front and center in these conversations of everything from absolutely right climate change to health and nutrition and it is very exciting you're absolutely right i'm an optimist and i believe that we as a species are creative um, you know, we're capable, we're intelligent, we, we fix problems, you know, we're really good problem solvers. We work well together more often than not, more, sometimes more, anyway. often. <laughs> uh, more often than not. So, I mean, I'm optimistic. I think entrepreneurs, scientists, engineers, business people, if we all sort of work together can create the food that people love so that there's no sacrifice, um, and also do so with far lower impact. And then, and that's amongst the, the groups of people who have enough. 
We also have the capability with entrepreneurs, scientists, engineers, and you know, people in the food system to be able to create foods which are less um, uh, resource intensive and which give us the capability of being able to feed people who are not able to get enough food right now, who are potentially you know, malnourished. And then you've got the, um, you know, the average American consumer who are consuming um, high, ca high calorie dense um, foods with low nutrition. And so they've got another problem such as obesity and heart disease and you know, all those other things. I think it's possible to get food that tastes as if it's bad for you, i.e. delicious, but actually is good for you in terms of its nutritionals. So that's the kind of nirvana, right? Give, giving people food that they think is a guilty pleasure that actually tastes delicious, but actually is healthy. Like who, who, who'd have thought we could actually deliver such a thing, right? Ice cream, we've got a company, for example, Revolution Gelato, that wins awards as, as like literally the best tasting ice cream you've ever tasted, and yet it's plant-based. No dairy, you know, no, no milk. Um, its nutritionals are really good. Um, so it tastes like it's bad for you, like, you know, it's a guilty pleasure, but it's actually uh, a far healthier option than, than kind of a typical ice cream. So that's the goal, right? Pro product foods that taste amazing, like they should be bad for you, but actually are good for you and good for the planet. So we'll see a lot of innovation in the chocolate space, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh, it would be, yeah. <laughs> And so, so I suppose on, on that, it, it's an interesting one. And I love the stat around, so like globally, yeah, 800 million people don't get enough food. We've got 2 billion people getting the wrong types of nutrient, nutrients and their, their calorie intake, as you're saying, is, is high, but it's just absolute crap that they're, they're putting in their bodies. Are you seeing much innovation targeted towards the developing world? Or, or are we really around around these big issues playing to where that kind of affluence is in in the western world yeah so i i spent a little bit of time um in the last year or so engaging with different folks focused in for example uh india uh i haven't yet had much of an opportunity to engage with people in the food system or the investment side in africa um what i what I wouldn't try and do, for example, is is take the dynamics of the marketplaces that in Europe, in North America, and try and extrapolate what's happening there in those places to either India or or Africa. For example, in Europe, in North America, there's people are moving increasingly away from meat, um, especially the younger populations. They're moving towards getting a more plant-based, uh, not completely plant-based, but a more plant-based diet. Um, in India, in Africa, and in China, the consumption of meat is increasing dramatically. It's seen as, a, as, an, it's seen as an aspirational food stuff, right? So more and more people in India are consuming meat, although previously it was a vegetarian um, society. Um, 72% of the population in India now consume meat uh, on an annual basis. Uh, in, Af in, in some African countries, that aspiration for more meat is increasing as well. The consequences of both of those continents 
moving more aggressively towards a meat um, diet has will have consequences from a climate perspective, a personal health perspective, obviously an animal welfare perspective. Um, but you know, who are we as the Western world or as you know a, a, a different culture to say to those folks, don't do that. You know, you should do something different. The only way we can, I can personally potentially impact what's happening in those other places is to work with local entrepreneurs to create re culturally relevant, great tasting foods, relevant to India, you know, relevant to Africa, um, and hope that those foods which have a lower impact in terms of the stresses on the environment or climate um, become popular and become products which people in those regions want to eat out of choice, out of, you know, habit, cultural relevance, etc. You can't force people or dictate to people what they're going to do on a day-to-day -day micro decision basis. The only thing you can do is create the foods which are more sustainable and hopefully are still very, very delicious so that on those micro decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, people are making the right decisions on, you know, as opposed to not. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? I suppose with when you're starting to look at the the developing world in particular, look, so much, I think it's 40% of the world's population are reliant on agriculture for their livelihoods. And so not only do we need to address sustainability, or I'll, I'll say, yeah, when we're talking about sustainability, we're, we're naturally defaulting to it's around climate and, and environment. But at the end of the day, we need these people to be economically sustainable, to lift themselves out of poverty. And that's where agriculture is that conduit for for a more just world we need agriculture to be better performing across across the board to deliver uh, better better opportunities for for the people and so it, it's a really interesting one and i suppose for you there touching on um on on the entrepreneurs actually in these areas that that would just be incredible stories to uncover just I suppose it's like talking with farmers, isn't it? And you see that people, like the innovation people come up with, what they can do with some some duct tape or some some zip ties and a few bits of pipe. They're, these people are incredibly innovative and generally at very low margins and very practically based. The funny thing is what, what happens across a, a country or a continent, whether from a health and a climate perspective, um, are little tiny daily decisions that we all make that you sort of stack on top of each other and you kind of add together. So for example, I am probably a good 30 pounds overweight. And it's because it's not because of the slice of pizza I had last night. It's because of the 25 slices of pizza I've had over the last like month. And it's not because of the little piece of ice cream I had last night. It's because of the pints of ice cream I've had over the last three months. It's all of the little tiny micro decisions. So if you want to change what's happening in a particular country or continent, you need to provide people with better choices, both from a taste perspective, a price perspective, a kind of an impact perspective. And if you can't provide those choices that people will make on a day-to-day -day decision making basis, nothing's going to change. So from my point of view, the secret source to all of this um, climate change, etc, is find great entrepreneurs who are going to create 
great foods using you know great ingredients from farmers and from the, the kind of ingredient sector that find great entrepreneurs that are going to create these products that taste amazing are at the right price point and yet have a lower impact on personal health and on you know climate health um, and it's getting those products out as pervasively as possible throughout the world are we going to be able to shift the impact we're having as a species on on our environment if that makes sense yeah absolutely no it is and it's breaking it down into bite-sized pieces i think it's what we've seen with with covid is it like it's similar to to the chat well similar to the challenge of climate change but we've seen that fundamentally when something needs to be implemented and happen we can do it overnight like the fact that the world shut down <laughs> for the last three months is it's a scary thought but it shows what what's yeah what we're capable of when uh when we need to now i think a similar parallel though we did it because we recognized that if we walked out of our front door tomorrow and we met the wrong person who was either symptomatic or asymptomatic we had the chance of dying right now we have the potential and i don't again i don't i'm not trying to be a depressing sob but we have the potential of there being um, extinction events across our globe because of all the stuff we're doing to it but because it's a slow incremental change we don't see that we need to lock, uh, flatten the curve tomorrow we think it's some other way it's it's some time away it's like next year year after 10 years 15 years and i'm not sure that it is you know i'm not sure that it just it's like the frog that's sort of getting slowly boiled in a you know, in a saucepan, as the temperatures gradually change, it doesn't recognize it's getting boiled to death. Um, you know, our climate is a similar, it is the, is the, is the saucepan with the water that's starting to boil. And we're just sitting in there, not really aware that we need to be flattening the curve of climate change right now and not, not in 10 years time. Anyway, yeah, better people than me, better people than me have talked about this. So I, I, I'm not going to be, you know, this is not my soapbox. It's somebody else's. Yeah, absolutely. And so I suppose, is there the optimistic side of Andrew? Is there on the big ideas side, and not that that yeah. was pessimistic at all, is there, <laughs> is there one, one thing that you see as like a, a pipe dream or just if you think if there's one thing we could do, I'd love to see this happen, like yeah. your one wish? Also, um, all of the companies that I back, I think are gonna potentially contribute significantly to this problem, like producing great foods that people are gonna love. Um, I kind of got a bee in my bonnet, um, quite literally about three or four years ago where I was getting really stressed about um, the decline of the bee community and the consequence of that to us in terms of you know, uh, fert uh, fertilizing plants and, uh, and so on. So, you know, the fact that we had de declining bee populations and, and what that could cause us to, to do. Um, I ended up looking at a company that was trying to, for example, breed flies, a specific breed of flies that would do the same pollination as bees if bees disappeared. So I was kind of looking at that company as a solution to this, uh, you know, problem with the bee, the bee community. Um, since then, we found a company called Melibio uh, that is um, 
creating uh, plant-based slash slash you know technology-driven honey versus um, traditional honey, and Melibio has the capability of being able to improve the situation for for honeybees by commercially producing what is basically honey at the molecular level, but doesn't require bees to be kind of controlled in hives, etc. So I think that that's an interesting technology, uh, which is potentially industry changing, that has the potential to help bees enormously. Um, and and therefore, you know, that whole concern we have around pollination could could be improved. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, I suppose what another one on that pollination side that I was only really made aware of um, when when COVID of all things would just keep dwelling back to it was just the role that bats play as well in in the ecosystem and particularly in Australia here with uh, with all our gum trees and eucalypts that a lot of that pollination occurs through bats which for me is kind of just mind blowing but. <laughs> We're, no, um, we're so connected to everything around us. We think we're just sort of this sort of independent species that's above it all. But, you know, I think one thing we've discovered with COVID is there's a, you know, we're all very linked to the environment and the, you know, the world we're in. Um, and if we screw with it, it'll screw, screw with us. <laughs> yeah. But, but to your point, I am very optimistic. I do believe that entrepreneurs, engineers, scientists will, help figure a lot of this stuff out if we as investors and business people you know back back the right entrepreneurs back the right scientists um, and help them to move the obstacles out of their way i think they there's enough creative people in our species to solve a lot of these challenges in the short to medium term um, so that's kind of one of the roles i think i have is to find those great entrepreneurs and do whatever i can to help them yeah amazing and so what's next for you guys? Uh, well, we've just found, um, we've just found uh, 12 great businesses across the world. Uh, one of them is from Australia. Uh, so we got, we got one in from Australia last cohort, which was Veronica and Sean with Grounded Foods. We've just found a second from Melbourne as well, actually. Uh, Home which of is doing it. <laughs> which is totally i'm not kidding melbourne is doing some amazing things on the biotech side on the food innovation side so yeah we just found a second company out of melbourne that we've just backed they're one of the 12 companies from around the world that we found we found around 225 companies that wanted to get investment from us we found 12 great great companies out of that that 225 250 one of those is from australia we'll announce the company name of that business very soon not today watch this space uh, yeah watch this space but from our point of view what's what we're focused on now is is now that we've made those investments we're going to work with those 12 companies and do what we can to get them funded you know get them um, growing quickly get them into market you know make sure that the potential we've seen them is realized yeah cool oh that's good so yeah three companies now you've scouted out of australia that's and two back to back. That's exciting. It is. It is. Melbourne's doing some cool things. We need yeah. some of the other cities in Australia to be represented now. Anyone that's not in Melbourne, but is in, you know, Sydney or, uh, you know, wherever else in Australia, make sure your uh, entrepreneurs apply to Big Idea Ventures as well. Otherwise, Melbourne's going to kick your butt. 
<laughs> Nothing like a bit of healthy competition. Make it like, make a sports reference to it and just say that, yeah, Melbourne's leading the way or, or beating you and, and a few others will come on board. <laughs> there you go. That, that's what we need to do. Absolutely. Um, I suppose, yeah, is, I can edit this bit out, but is there anything else you'd like to cover at this stage? I think it's been a really interesting chat. Thank you, Ollie. Um, I think the big thing from my point of view is uh, we are always looking for great, great companies. So if anyone, you know, wants some help, uh, if, I, if I can be helpful as, as an individual, they can reach out to me via LinkedIn. So Andrew Ive um, on LinkedIn. Um, if Big Idea Ventures can be helpful to anyone in the plant-based, cell-based space, in food kind of specifically, uh, whether it's in terms of our network or money or just, you know, assistance, they can reach out to us at BigIdeaVentures.com. Um, we are mission driven, you know, we're trying to change the world for the positive, but we're, you know, but we're doing that through backing and supporting great entrepreneurs. So we just want those entrepreneurs to reach out to us and, uh, apply and, you know, if, if we love you, if we think you're going to be great, we'll back you. Yeah. Great. I love that. Can I just say, I'm not picking a fight here, Andrew, but on LinkedIn, I sent you a request and you didn't reply. Oh, sorry. You didn't, uh, you didn't accept me. I suppose you're getting a lot. I've I've got about a thousand people currently (laughs) sitting in the wait box for that. I just, I literally have about 10 minutes every night where I'll go through and I'll be like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Um, (laughs) I'm probably in January's uh, applicants at this point. No, that's all right. Luckily, Christian. I'm going to do it right now. Right now, Ollie. Ollie. That's an interesting name. Where'd you get the name from? Obviously, your mum and dad. Yeah, I got it from what, dad. Where, um, but yeah, so we're, we're French. Um, came out to Australia probably two or three generations ago. And yeah, my, my grandpa grew up in Wagga Wagga, which is a country town in New South Wales. Had mm-hmm. four brothers that uh, were involved in agriculture. All of them went off to World War II. And then um, my grand, grandpa settled as an interior designer in, in Melbourne. So... One thing I would make the point of, by the way, is um, because we're po- focused on um, plant-based and cell-based, that doesn't mean that we are anti um, that we are anti um, pharma or anti you know food uh, animal protein company etc. Um, we just think that there are what there are better ways or new ways of making money so for example one of our first investors in our fund is tyson and tyson is is probably the world's largest manufacturer of chickens um they invested in our fund and basically at pretty much the same time said to the world we're not just an animal protein company we're now a protein company we'll we'll find and sell great animal protein and also plant-based protein. So from my point of view, you know, we're always going to need protein as consumers. If you're a farmer and you're creating animal protein, there are other, there are new ways and new markets and new consumers for protein more broadly. So as a farmer, you have new ways of making more money of, of, you know, selling more products to consumers. Um, Like most industries, consumers change over time markets shift um we're always gonna as species need protein so if you're a farmer that produces animal protein right now maybe there are new ways to to kind of make money and keep the business growing um 
I'm, I, you know, we're not, from our point of view, we're not anti anyone. We're not saying farm, uh, we're not saying that animal farms are bad or, or whatever. What we're saying is consumers are shifting and there are new ways to engage with consumers and make more money as a farmer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably, it, it's, it's one of those ones. It's an industry that's so steeped in its traditions. Um, but, but it's naive to think that the world's not changing before our, before our eyes and, and really understanding more about what those consumers, consumers are doing. So I suppose for me, that's, um, yeah, it's, it's one thing I'm trying to do here with humans of agriculture is just across the industry or just making food relatable to people and then actually drawing that back into agriculture. If we can start to do that, we can start to address some of these bigger issues. But, but at the moment there, there is this disconnect and lack of understanding. So I suppose um, it's the first time I've ever said it on air, but our, like the vision here for humans of agriculture is to, is to create healthier, happier, and more prosperous people through agriculture. And, and that touches every facet of our life. So, um, yeah, so thanks I got a lot. Into a really good, I got into a really good conversation with a guy in Australia, Melbourne, that's music, that's creating a, a food processing plant for fava beans. So yes. basically, um, fava beans is, so we are looking on the plant-based side for more and more innovative ingredients, which provide the protein source that we need for these plant-based foods. And so, you know, he is setting up a fava bean processing plant to produce the protein, you know, plant-based protein, uh, which could be a possible ingredient for this. So, I mean, you know, there's more and more opportunities using agriculture, using natural ingredients that are being grown in Australia, for example. And Australia is trusted as the kind of production center for agriculture in Asia. You know, if, if something comes from Australia, if something's made in Australia, it's trusted across Asia. Um, not so with China, not so with other places. So, you know, it, I think Australia could be a really good source of, of really clean, good quality, consistent ingredients and other things for the plant-based space. Yeah, absolutely. We're, um, I think a few years ago we were talking that we were going to be the supermarket of Asia, but we've got so many consumers. We produce enough food for 75 million of them. Uh, this is where we're starting to see such big opportunities in that knowledge and technology piece where, where we can actually start to really boost that as an export industry of its own. So it's an exciting time. Holly, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate you giving us this opportunity. Well, that's it for another week and thanks for joining us again. I hope you're enjoying the chats, but we would love your feedback. You can get in touch with Andrew Ive via LinkedIn or his website, bigideaventures.com. There are notes and links to Revolution Gelato, Grounded Foods and Uplift Foods. But if there's anything that you want to talk about from this episode, please reach out. Next week, we're doing things a little bit differently and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. You can follow us on Instagram at humansofagriculture underscore or feel free to jump across to our website, humansofagriculture.com. Got some exciting chats coming up in the next few weeks that I can't wait to share with you. Look after yourselves and we'll see you next week.